As we continue in our look at the book of Psalms through in and out, I want to share with you in his book, Glory Days, Living Your Promise Land Life Now, Max Licato told the story of, an, of Nadine Curry, who's a 13-year-old boy, uh, five foot two, weighed soaking wet, probably about 100 pounds. His attackers were teenagers larger than Nadine and outnumbered him seven to one. For 30 minutes, they hit, kicked, and beat him. He never stood a chance. Corey's mom had recently moved the family to Philadelphia from Minnesota. She lost her job as a hotel maid there and was looking for work. In 2000, she escaped war-torn Liberia. Nadine Corey then was the new kid in a rough neighborhood with a mom who was an unemployed immigrant, everything a wolf pack of bullies needed to justify an attack. The hazing began weeks earlier. They picked on him. They called his mother names. Um, They routinely pushed, shoved, and ambushed him. Then came the all-out assault on a January day. They dragged him through the snow, stuffed him into a tree, and suspended him on a seven-foot wrought iron fence. Corey survived the attack and would have likely faced a few more except for the foolishness of one of the bullies. He filmed the pylon and posted it on YouTube. A passerby saw the violence and chased away the bullies. Police saw the video and got involved. The troublemakers landed in jail and the story reached the papers. Now, keep in mind, Lucado is not endorsing a TV show, but he, he shared this. A staffer on the nationwide morning show, The View, read the account and invited Corey to appear on the broadcast. He did. As the video of the assault played on the screen behind him, he tried to appear brave and strong, but his lower lip was quivering. At the end, when giving his reason why he was willing to appear on the show, he said, next time, maybe it could be someone smaller than me. Now, Lucado continues, I watched the video this week. The producer had invited some other Philadelphians unknown uh, to Corey to be on the show. As a YouTube video ended, the curtain opened and three huge men walked out members of the Philadelphia Eagles football team. Corey was a rabid fan, and he turned and smiled. One was all-pro receiver Deshaun Jackson, and Jackson took a seat as close as he could to the boy. Uh, He actually gave him a a signed jersey. Uh, He took it off his back and signed it, which made it even neater. And he looked at him, and he had his arm around his shoulder, and he said, anytime you need us, I got two linemen here. And Corey's eyes widen and a huge grin shows up on his face. And then, in full view of the audience, Deshaun Jackson then gave Corey, Nadine Corey, his private cell number. Lakato writes, from that day on forward, Corey has been only a call away from his personal bodyguards. 
Thugs think twice before they harass the kid who has an NFL football's player number on speed dial. Pretty good offer. Who wouldn't want that type of protection? Today we're going to take a look at a psalm, which is the polar opposite of what we looked at last week. Uh, as bleak as last week was, this psalm is full of joy and excitement and praise for God. So please stand as I read Psalm 91, a beautiful passage of Scripture. By the way, contains the only verse of Scripture Satan ever quoted. William Shakespeare said that the devil could quote Scripture when he wanted to. He quotes this passage. You'll probably figure it out. But just in case, I'll let you know. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will not, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The psalm we look at today has elements of both a wisdom psalm and a song of confidence and praise. It's wisdom, if you noticed uh, in verse 3, the pronoun changes from I to you, which you cannot tell just because of English. This is the singular you. This is not plural. And so the emphasis is the psalmist is speaking to each individual person whose walk is with God. And then at the end, the voice of God is heard. Whether we understand it as coming from a prophet or God directly speaking, God ends the passage. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once stated, and it's not an overstatement, in the whole collection of psalms there is not a more cheering psalm. Its tone is elevated and sustained throughout. Faith is at its best and speaks nobly. Now, the psalm is anonymous. There is no heading here. No phrase in a title that would let us know to whom it was given. 
the Jewish interpreters tended to assign the authorship of an unknown psalm to the writer of the psalm immediately before it, and that was Moses. So, it could be Moses. And if this is too, if this is right, if Moses is a man, then it is a startling contrast to 90. I had us read 90 because it's somber. It, it is a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of, of concern and pain. While this psalm is cheerful, Psalm 90 is, God, we need your help. We're about to be destroyed. Psalm 91 says, God is with you. Now, Woodrow Kroll supports Mosaic authorship. And I find his argument interesting. I cannot say beyond any shadow of doubt that he's right. But listen to what he says. Some of the motifs in Psalm 91 correspond well to the life of Moses. The noisome pestilism and terror by night sounds an awful lot like the angel of death going through Egypt. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and it shall not come near you. Neither shall any plague come nigh your dwelling again. The idea of the Egyptian Passover event. When he says, the angels give charge over thee, and we know that the the angels of the Lord Encamped rounds about his people, Psalm 22 says, over and over again, these are reminiscent of things that happened in Egypt and the escape. But what I want you to understand, whoever the author is, whether it's Moses or someone unnamed, doesn't matter. Because in this psalm, God promised protection to those who walked in an intimate relationship with him. He uses the phrase, in the shadow of the Almighty, Now, it's been pointed out that phrase in the shadow suggests nearness. If you're walking with a group of people on a bright, sunshiny day and you want their shadow to be upon you, you've got to be pretty close. It's a a time of companionship and friendship. It's it's connection. And as we look at this psalm closely, I believe that we will discovered that God wants us to live in a close, intimate fellowship with him. And that relationship and that closeness and that dependence will bring about amazing results in our lives as we walk in the shadow of the Almighty. And so we're going to look at that today. And I want to share with you, in the shadow of the Almighty, a life of close fellowship will be displayed in the way we live. It's one thing for me to say, oh, how I love Jesus. It's another thing for me to say, oh, how I love Jesus, and my life confirms that. They are not polar opposite. They are connected, and people can see that what Jesus says is incredibly important in my life. You see, I believe that in this psalm, The psalmist pointed to a clear lifestyle for those who live in the shadow of the Almighty. What did he say? Well, right off the bat, he he talks about making God his dwelling place. Dwelling place in the shelter of the Lord. Now, in Psalm 32, 
verse 7. I'm reading from the NIV. And in the NIV, Psalm 132.7 reads, You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. The King James, both words, shelter and hiding place, talk about the secret place of God. Now, did he have in mind the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies? Possibly. But I think if he is pointing to that image, he's not trying to be literal because how many people can go into the Holy of Holies? One. How often? Once a year. So dwelling in the hiding place of God is talking about in that secret place where I have commitment and communion with God Almighty. The promise of victory is the theme of this psalm. And the word to dwell means to remain, to stay, to tarry, to endure, to live there. Now for us, as followers of Christ, what is our hiding place? Where do we dwell? Where do we abide? John 15, 7 and 8. Jesus said that his disciples are to dwell, to abide in him as branches dwell or abide in the vine. The abiding life for Jesus Christ meant it's, it's the equivalent of that dwelling in the secret place of intimacy. Our connection with God, our intimate older brother who has brought us to the Lord, we are told to abide in him, to remain in him, to dwell in him. In other words, let him guide our lives, order our words, open our hearts. We are to be connected. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. God the Father is with us forever. So the idea is we are looking for a place where God isn't a philosophical question. Where God isn't an idea. We're looking toward a personal God. A place where we can have communion with God. A dwelling place. We are like Moses who was put in the cleft of the rock when God said, I'm going to show you myself, but I'm not going to let you die. And he stuck him in a little cleft. By the way, do you remember that gospel song? He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. That's what he's doing. And God passes by. Folks, we don't need the Holy of Holies. We don't need a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the place where God and man meets now. And we are to walk in that. So those who live in the shadow of the Almighty, who are dwelling in Him, put their trust in Him. Not only do they dwell, not only do they seek out that secret place of intimacy, they trust. There are two really neat names for God titles for God in that first verse. He is God Most High. El Elyon. The God who is above all of the false gods of the world. There is none greater. There is none like Him. He is God Most High. He is God Almighty. El Shaddai. The God of the mountains. The God of the victory. The God of warrior. And in the threats 
that are facing or could face the psalmist, he says, I have found in God a refuge. One I can turn to in a time of trouble. I have found God to be my fortress, my gated wall that no one can breach, and I am with him. He has found his confidence in the Lord, and he understands my victory is not in me. It is in the God that I'm trusting. And so he feels safe. He feels absolutely safe in the arms of the Lord. The Lord is his shield and his new NIV says rampart. That word is debated. What does it mean? Literally, it's talking about something being wrapped around your body. So it's very possible. He's talking about an armor. God is my armor. Rampart is that protective wall that will keep you safe. But the idea, God is using a military term. God is with me. God is protecting me. And then he talks about in the shadows of his wings and gathering up. Uses one of the few times in scripture, uh, a female image is used of God, a mother hen who is hiding her chicks under her rings, perhaps keeping the hawk up above, not seeing the helpless babies. The idea is, God, I trust you. I'm committing myself into your hands. And then those who live in the shadow of the Almighty have discovered the grace that rescues from the threat of judgment. Did you notice? It came pretty quickly. God lists all of these terrible things and he says, but you will only see the punishment of the wicked. God is letting his people know. And by the way, this is when the you is taking place. You individually will not face the wrath of God. Why? Because you belong to the Lord. You're seeking out intimate fellowship by dwelling with him. You are trusting him in times of struggle. You are a person who has found grace to be able to stand in a world of difficulty and pain. And those who live in the shadow not only find grace, but they become a people of prayer. I turn to him, I seek him, I I open my heart. And then when God himself is speaking, he says, he calls out to me and I'm listening. God affirms that he answers prayer. Now, this is a person who is living in the shadow of God Almighty. He dwells with, he abides with, he, he lives for and in God. He trusts God. He has received grace. And he and or she is a person who prays and seeks God. H.C. Leopold points out God gives some reasons in this passage why he's going to work on people in such a way. And it doesn't show up in the NIV. The ESV kind of gives you the idea there. But when God says, 
He loves me. The phrase means he clings to me with love. That's unique. That You don't find that a whole lot in the Psalms. When they start giving all the reason God's blessed, this is kind of unique to this Psalm. He clings to me. He holds on to me. He is trusting me. The child clutches a parent's arm in time of fear. Need of protection. So does the child of God who clings to God when things are more than he can handle. And then he acknowledges my name. Means more than just saying, yeah, Yahweh is his name. He knows my name. I've talked about the importance of name in the Hebrew scriptures a lot. But a name stood for somebody's character. Uh, Esau is named Esau because he's hairy. Jacob is called Jacob because he grabbed his brother's ankle and tried to pull him back in the womb. To know somebody's name meant you knew that person. My two names combined. Now, if you use the, not the diminutive Danny, but if you go to Daniel, my two names combined mean God is a righteous judge. I guarantee you that was not on my parents' mind when they named me Danny Fred. They liked the name. Still a little confused about that myself, but they liked it. But for God to say he knows my name, he's saying the person who trusts me, the person who's living for me, the person who is praying to me, the person who has grace, he knows me. Just let that sink in a minute. Children of the living God know their father. How? Because he's reached out to us. He has said, come to me and know me. He knows what kind of God I am. And then he says, he calls upon me. And he says, I'll be with him in trouble. I'll be with him in trouble. Now, the question comes. Each of us must honestly evaluate where we stand with our Lord. Am I really conscious of the presence of God in my life? Am I seeking out that intimate, secret place by which I can come to know God even better? How often in my life do my thoughts turn to God? And not just at that moment when I'm saying, God, get me out of trouble. They turn to me and and I think of all he's done for me and I think about his love for me and his grace. How often do I think about that? How often do I remember everything that he's done in my life and just spill out with a heart of thanksgiving and praise? Or do I think about him on Sundays and the rest of the week I'm too busy? Do I really trust him as my Lord? Now, trust means more than acknowledging mental facts, assenting to, yes, he's the son of God, born of, I believe all those things. Do I trust him? It is a commitment of the whole life. And commitment can be a scary thing. 
Leland Patrick preached a, a sermon uh, about the, the finer points of love, and he gave his own experience. He said, several years ago, I went with a group of men to an obstacle course in Northport. Some people call these rope courses. The goal is to, for your group to move through a series of obstacles as you build trust and the spirit of teamwork. For me, the most challenging obstacle is the trust platform. At this obstacle, each person must take turns climbing up to a platform that is located five or six feet above ground level. Once you get on the platform, you are to fold your arms, turn your back, and fall from the platform into the arms of your friends. And this requires trust. A great deal of trust. And as I think back into a number of the friends that I've had in my life, that's why I don't do rope courses. Trust. Do we trust God? Is my hope on His grace or my effort? Do I realize that everything I am that is good, everything that I am that is righteous, everything that is mine that says I am a Christian came from his hand and not from my work? And how often am I spending time in fellowship with him? You know, that thing Paul says, pray without ceasing. Our prayers are typically around the things we need at a moment of crisis. How often am I just talking to God? And how often do I open up his word and as I'm talking to him, I say, okay, Lord, help me listen to what you're saying. I believe that we can. We can open ourselves up to an intimate walk with the one we call Father. This isn't just wishful thinking. We can walk with God. We can know him. We can love him and know his love for us. But at some point, our hunger to know God has to break through our excuses that we're too busy or we just don't understand the Bible and the excuses go on and on. God, I want to know you and I want to love you but I need your help. So walking in the shadow of the Almighty shows us what our life should be like. And trust is a key element because everything else I've said grows out of a heart that has learned to trust God. So we move forward. In the shadow of the Almighty... A life of close fellowship will experience God's amazing care. If we are walking closely with God, we begin to understand how he's moving and touching our lives and helping us. Now, when we look at the psalm and what we see, we see that the psalmist listed the various ways God would move on behalf of those who rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He is telling his people now. The spokesperson addressing the people, God wants to do this in your life. 
each individual person who is dwelling in his heart, his, the secret place of God, who is trusting him, who is praying, he wants to do this. So what does God do? God provides refuge for those who live in the shadow. He's already said that he is my, I seek him in the shelter, secret place. He is my refuge. But now he's saying he wants to be your refuge. When you find yourself in the time of struggle, God says, turn to me. Trust me. So not only is he one who can provide the, the safety and security, God also provides the tower of strength to actually live for him. In, the, in a world of battle and spiritual warfare, God says, I will be your refuge and I will be your strength. The fortress God supplies will keep him safe from the attack of the enemy. I love Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One of my favorite, favorite hymns. And it talks about the devil and how mighty and powerful he is. And he says, we don't have to fear him. It's not about us. If we did it in our own strength, we would lose. But we don't do it on our own strength. God has supplies man. If you're not sure who he is, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will defeat him with one little word. Now, I don't know what Martin Luther had in mind when he said one little word. But on the cross, in his agony and in his pain, Jesus cried out, not one little word in English, it is finished. To tell us, die, one little word. Salvation has been purchased. All of the lies and the power of Satan have been defeated. He's still fighting, but he's lost the war because of one little word and because of our fortress that God grants to us. Matt Mason has pointed out the four dangers listed. Verses 5 and 6, terror by night, arrow day, pestilence at night, destruction of the day. When you bring all those together, they do a pretty good collective placeholder of all the threats that life can bring you. And God says, I'm going to take care of you. I'll be your fortress in those times. God embraces freely those who live in his shadows. Verse 15, he says, he calls to me and I will hear him. I will answer him. God hears and knows. Now, does he always answer as quickly as we want? No. He doesn't always answer the way we think he should fix things. But he promises he will hear us. And then he promises which if you look at this psalm as meaning nothing bad can ever happen, verse 15 deals with that question, I will be with him in trouble. 
I'm going to deal with that in just a moment, but, but there's a hint there. He does say that God will deliver them. Ultimately, he will deliver them. He will give them a fulfilled life. Long life was one of those images that the Bible uses a lot for a meaningful and rich life. But I'll satisfy him. I'll give him the life. Jesus put it this way. I've come to give you life and more abundant. And then in verse 16, I will show him my salvation. I will ultimately show him what I've done. I will show her what has been done on her behalf because there was a point in time she opened her heart to me. There was a point in time he confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been saved. We are in the process of being saved, being more like Christ. But there will come a day, a time, when we will be saved fully and completely. And God says, I'm going to show them that. Now, I do have to address an issue that this psalm has raised with a lot of people. We must take care to understand this amazing text in the context of the whole of Scripture. Bill likes to really focus in on that idea of context. Sometimes we think of context just as the verses right before and after, or the psalm before and the psalm after, or whatever, chapter and chapter. But there's also a context of the entire Word of God. And if you look at this text, and some do, to say, we can live without trouble in this world, this is a very troubling interpretation. Donald Williams has said it is troubling because it seems to be based on an unworkable theology, a theology of glory. Now, you're probably not familiar with the phrase theology of glory. But a theology of glory is an approach to Christianity and to life that in different ways tries to minimize anything difficult or painful or else defeat and move past them. It's Christian science in the writings of Mary Baker Eddy that said death and sickness is an illusion. It's not real, and if you just study and know the truth, you'll be freed from it. It's the problem of a, a prosperity gospel that insists that if someone isn't healed, they don't have enough faith that they've used the wrong words. Theology of glory says, you're a Christian. It should all be about life. But Williams asks, what about suffering? What about the martyrs? What about the cross? What about children with Down syndrome? What about Christians who pray for healing only to hear silence? And I want to remind you, and I've recently reference this verse, but one more time. It was Jesus who said in John 16, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We must not take this as an absolute guarantee that the child of God will never suffer because there are numerous places in the Old Testament 
and the New Testament alike that indicate godly people do suffer according to the plan of God. God allowed Job to be tested. God allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery and to go into prison for a crime he did not commit. In the New Testament, Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. Paul is ultimately executed. And a very strong Christian tradition, historical tradition, is that all of the apostles, save John, died martyrs' deaths. But how about passages of God like Romans 8.28? God is working all things together for good of those who love him, called according to his purpose, that they might be transformed and conformed into the image of his son. We've got to understand that God often uses adversity to produce endurance. Clearly taught in James 1, 2 through 4. When James says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. Because know this, the trying of your faith worketh patient. And then patience, and he goes on and on. So then in the end, you will be all that you're meant to be. And then I remind you, did you, did you listen for, did you look for the scripture Satan misquoted? It's probably significant for us to understand Jesus, Satan quoted this scripture to Jesus when he said, hey, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple because angels will keep your feet from dashing against the stone. So talk about a bad interpretation of the verse of scripture. And Jesus said, you will not tempt the Lord your God. William Van Gemmeren has said, God's people trust their Heavenly Father while they act responsibly. Hence, they do not test the Lord to see to what extent He will deliver them from troubles. I remember talking to a man once. It was not in the context of a counseling. It wasn't in the context of a church service. Just a guy I know. And he and I were in a discussion. And he said, if I lay down on that train track over there and I go to sleep, and a train comes, and it's not God's time for me to die, I will not die. And I immediately come, don't tempt the Lord your God, don't test Him. But I decided not to quote Scripture, I just said, well friend, if you lie down on that train track, and a train comes and runs over you, guess what? It was your time to die. Folks, we need to understand we cannot just say only believe this psalm promises nothing can happen. Life is filled with pain. But there is coming a day when this psalm will be fulfilled for all eternity. Listen to the faith chapter, the book of Hebrews. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. 
These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Now those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly place. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. When I look at this psalm, and I'm keeping in line the context of the whole of Scripture, I'm assured that whatever comes into my life cannot ultimately destroy me as a child of God. I believe that God can and does immediately deal with some of the problems that we face in life, some of the struggles. I have watched people who were pronounced as good as dead leave a hospital room. But sometimes God doesn't heal. And sometimes God does not just take away the problem, but... If we look at the broad spectrum of God's word, there is good news. Matt Mason said, the Bible has great news for people of faith. Your best life comes later. It comes later, but it lasts forever. That's great news for people of faith, both then and now. Whatever I face, if God does not bring the healing... He brings the strength to face the battle. If the enemy assaults and I am not rescued, God is big enough. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one of the strongest statements of faith in all of the word of God, we will not bow down because we know that our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. That's the great news. There is coming a day when all pain will be gone, all sorrow will be gone, all tears wiped away. But until that day, I believe we can truly live under the watch care of the God who calls us his own. You see, when God doesn't immediately solve the problem, I believe he grants strength. And when the struggles have come, of life come, He never stops loving us. What then? What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the law of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever storm we face, God is with us. And give us what we need to endure, to conquer, to show his strength. I shared a story. One of my favorite pa- uh, professors of all time was a man by the name of Don- uh, Donald Potts. Dr. Potts typically wasn't a very emotional guy. But he told us the story of his wife. Not long after he started teaching, his wife contracted breast cancer. And it was back in the day when Minor surgeries weren't an option. It was going to be a radical mastectomy, no question asked. He got on the phone and called friends from all the churches he had pastored and asked for them to pray. When they were getting ready to do the surgery, they did one last battery of tests and the doctors came back into the room and said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Potts, we can't answer this. There is no cancer. It's gone. We know that it was there. We know how serious it was, but it's no longer there. And Dr. Potts said, in all the years after that, I've never known anyone who has ever come to faith because of my wife's story. But shortly after Mrs. Potts was healed, miraculously, the doctors actually use the word miracle, Her father was diagnosed with cancer. The same people were called, the same people prayed, the same amount of faith, maybe even bolstered because of her healing. But his father-in-law was not healed. And back in the day before there was hospice, before there were all sorts of advocates for people in, in terminal conditions, Uh, He died the typical death. He spent the last three months of his life in a hospital in pain, and they would try to alleviate the pain as much as possible. And at this point, this man that never really got very emotional would start tearing up. We knew something amazing was about to happen if Dr. Potts was crying. He again said, I've never known, not a single person ever came to faith because of my wife's healing. But in the three months my father-in-law lay dying in a hospital, 20 people came to faith. People on staff, people who had come to cheer him up. And what was happening, people were coming and they said, you're dying. And he would answer yes. But how can you be so peaceful about this? How can you have joy? I came in here to cheer you up and, and you're 
lightening my load. How is that possible? How do you have peace? To which he would respond, let me tell you about Jesus, who is my peace. Folks, the heart that is focused, living in the shadow of the Almighty, will give evidence of such a life. And those who live in the shadow of the Almighty will know that God's hand is with them, sometimes to completely deliver, sometimes to give the strength of what is needed to keep pushing forward. But one day, when God calls all of his people home, There won't even be the memory of the pestilence by night, the fear by day, the sword, but we will be with our God forever and ever. I ask you to bow your heads before the Lord right now. And if you are facing such a time of struggle, I would like to pray with you.